Let me pray for us as we get going this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have woken us up to a new day. We thank you that you have brought us here together. We thank you that you've given us your word. Um, Lord, we uh, pray that now your spirit would be with us because we know that we will not be able to understand your word and we won't be able to apply your word to our lives unless your spirit is with us. So you, we pray that you would send your spirit now, that the spirit would be, your spirit would be governing the words that I speak, that your spirit would be opening all of our minds to hear and understand, and then your spirit would be applying the word to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Good to be together again. I, I really enjoyed last week. I hope you guys did too. So we're going to do that same thing. We're going to spend time um, together going through the material and looking very closely at Genesis 3 and then implications for Genesis 3 for the rest of scripture. And then we're going to take a little break. I'm hoping to be done roughly 1030-ish because we've got some really good discussion questions. I apologize. No one has had the discussion questions in advance, um, but really what the discussion questions are going to be all about just applying the teaching that we're looking at this morning to ourselves. Um, so I want you to have enough time to do that. I have them printed out so that you can do that in your table times, and then we wanted to leave plenty of time uh, for prayer as well. But before we dive into the material um, today, I wanted to talk to you all about something that I'm experiencing that maybe you guys are experiencing as well. And that's this. I am really enjoying, like last week I had such a fun time, but as we're reading through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 last week and we're studying it, like all these questions are popping into my mind. I'm like, oh, what about that? Oh, I'm interested in this. How does this work out? You know, we got to the whole thing about how Adam needs a helper. And I'm like, oh, helper, what does that mean? How does that work out in my life? And like all these questions came to, to me. And then as well, some when I'm reading the book. So like this week, he, Roberts has this kind of like one sentence where he talks about how the serpent maybe might be interpreted symbolically. And I'm like, wait a second, what is all that about? You're like totally messing with the picture that I have of the serpent talking to Eve. And then he kind of like has that one sentence and then he sort of drops it and doesn't come back to it. So like that's just for me prompting questions and things that I want to think about more and explore further. Is that happening for any of you all as well? Yeah. I mean, we could have spent the whole semester just on Genesis 1 to 3, couldn't we? We could have really slowed down and done a very thorough study, and it really would have been a profitable study. We all would have gotten a lot out of it. But that's not what we've decided to do in this study. So I just kind of wanted to remind all of us of what the overall aim is for our study this term so that we can kind of keep that in mind when these questions um, pop into our heads. And that is this. We all want to gain a better understanding of the overarching storyline of the Bible, and then we want to understand how certain events 
or certain passages fit into that storyline and fill out that storyline. So this is like we're, you know, we're not looking at the trees. We're like moving out, and this is the forest view of Scripture um, that we're doing during this term. And so that's going to determine... Uh, there are going to be a couple of criteria of what we're going to focus on during our time on Thursday morning. And these two criteria go together. One is going to be, we're going to just focus on what's clear in the passage or what scripture makes clear um, about that passage that we're studying. And then as well, we're going to look for things that fit into that storyline of scripture. We won't be able to look into everything or follow every theme, but the focus is going to be things that really fit into that overarching storyline of scripture. I do not want to discourage you guys from having theological discussions and being curious and interested and following up some of these other interesting things that are raised. Because I think we should be having theological discussions and we should be digging deeply into our Bibles. This is what the Lord wants us to be doing. But on, on Thursday mornings, really all we can do is be thinking about how do these things fit into that whole storyline and kind of following some of those themes through the storyline of Scripture. Does anyone have questions about that, something they want to, or something they want to pursue about that? Okay, good. Well, um, if you do, you know, feel free to bring that up with me or someone else in the room, your table group leader, um, and we can have more conversations about that. Um, And then also, just again, I want to iterate, we're going to, sometimes we're going to have a little bit of disagreement, and there are going to be some areas of disagreement that are okay to have. And then there are other areas where it's really not okay to have disagreement. Um, And if you have questions about, well, what are those areas where it's okay to have disagreement? What are those areas where it's not okay to have disagreement? Again, that's something to talk to either your table group leader or one of the teachers about, come talk to me. And we can talk about like, you know, where, where are the boundary markers, right? Where Outside of that, it's not okay to have disagreement um, and to call ourselves believers. But inside those boundary markers, it is okay to have some disagreement. Okay, um, that's enough said about that. Let's get into the perished kingdom and Genesis 3. Now, unfortunately, I have the task this week of presenting and for us to talk about the bad news, right? We had the good news last week, and now we're in the bad news. I thought Mary had such a great illustration last week. You remember when she came and talked to us about going downstairs and whacking her head on that beam and then kind of falling backwards and like whacking her ankle. And I mean, that was such a good illustration of how Genesis 3 affects our everyday lives. So thank you, Mary, for going through that experience so I didn't have to and I could just reference it. (laughs) Well, we can can kind of joke, and when things like that happen, we can say, like, oh, that's the fall, or that's Genesis 3 working itself out. But it also happens in much more serious areas of our lives, doesn't it? It happens 
when our kids face difficulties or issues or when we face sickness or when someone that we dearly love is facing sickness as well. This is all Genesis 3 working itself out. And so the thing that we want to be thinking about is what does Genesis 3 and the way that it's worked out through the rest of Scripture, how does it speak to those issues? Does it have anything to say when we deal with the fallenness and the brokenness of this world, when we deal with broken relationships, when we deal with brokenness in our own lives? What does Genesis 3 and the way it works out have to say to that? And that's what we're hopefully going to be able to start getting to some of those answers. And then you'll do more um, digging in those and how that applies to your own lives and the lives of people around you in your discussion groups. So where did we leave off last week? Where were we? This is that time when you guys, you know, <laughs> you start piping up and then getting involved. Okay, we saw the pattern of the kingdom. And what, what was that pattern? Everything was good. Yes. Everything was good. Someone add, what else? What, what, what was going on? Who did? There was order. Yep. And who did we have? Adam and Eve. Yep. Marriage. We had Adam and Eve. Where were they? In the garden. So we had God's people, Adam and Eve, and they were in God's place in that beautiful, perfect garden. And then what, what, was, what was God saying to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Take care of the garden. Yes, yeah, so God's words to them, his rule. And then negatively, what did he say? Don't eat from the one, one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why were they not to eat of it? They would die. He even told them why not to eat of it. Yep, so we had this great setup. They're in the garden, Adam and Eve, his people in perfect communion and fellowship with him and then under his rule, right? And then uh, we get to chapter three. So God has spoken to Adam in chapter two and one and two, well, in chapter two, and he has given him this job. Then we get to chapter three, and in the beginning of chapter three, Satan comes along and Satan speaks to Eve. And this is where everything starts going wrong. All right, so open up to uh, Genesis 3. And we're just going to walk through the first seven verses kind of slowly. Let me read verses 1 through 7 to us. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... You can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. 
the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right, so let's drill down for a second into verse one. Satan arrives, he speaks to Eve. What tactics is he using to try and tempt Eve? Doubt, yeah. What's he trying to get her to doubt? God's goodness and God's word. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yep, so he's exaggerating. He's causing her doubt. He's exaggerating. Anything else, you guys? Yeah. Oh, he's tempting her to think she has less than she really needs. He's making, trying to make God sound harsh. God's not caring for her, right? Okay, so he's taking some truth and then twisting it a little bit, <laughs> which becomes a lot. A little twist is a lot. no truth, right? Yeah, good. Okay, now let's look at verses two to three, and let's look at kind of how Eve responds. How does she respond at first? That's kind of the first thing she says. Okay. Okay, so she starts with what they can do. And when she starts with what they can do, is that positive? Is that good? Yeah, she's on the right track, isn't she? She is affirming God's goodness. She's affirming God's, um, uh, the truth of what he said. She's not doubting his goodness. She's not exaggerating. She's Excellent. She's correcting Satan's uh, misinformation. Yes. Good. But then what does she go on to do? Okay, she overcorrects. How does she do that? Okay, so she extends the restriction. She adds to what God has said. Yes. Anything else you guys want to say about what Eve doing? Nope. I think that's good. She's also twisting a bit, beginning to, a little, little bit, just in terms of adding. Not necessarily twisting, maybe just, I'll just go with adding. You were, I should have stopped there, Kelly. Good job. <laughs> okay, so, but then Satan is not content. So he comes back to her in verses four and five. And kind of the questioning, the doubting, the twisting, it hasn't worked. So what tactic does he now use in four and five? He contradicts. Yeah, he just like flat out lies. And how does he do that? Oh, he calls God a liar. How does he do that? Okay. He, you won't die. Okay, so he calls God a liar by basically saying, or what God says is not true because you will not die. Yeah. Good. Anything else you guys want to add? What else does he do? Okay. Yeah, so he, 
Not only does he say those bad consequences aren't going to happen, but he makes it desirable by saying, you're going to be like God. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He's defaming God's character by, uh, would you say, sort of with saying God's withholding something, something good for them, something... He knows something he's not telling them. Anything else you guys want to bring out from these verses? I say, I, I think you've seen great stuff. Okay, let's move on to the beginning of verse 6. Let's just look at the way that Eve is tempted by the fruit. How is she tempted? Mm-hmm. It's appealing to the eye. Okay, she's deciding that this fruit is good instead of coming under what God said. She convinces herself. Okay, yep, so she does all of these things. What's Eve forgotten when she's telling herself all these things about the fruit? What's she leaving out? Well, she's leaving out her husband. Yes, good. So she is making decisions on her own, isn't she? She's, she's heard this mis- misinformation from uh, Satan, but she's not going to her husband to check, hey, is this right? But even more importantly, who is she not checking with? She's not checking with God. That's right. Anything else she's forgotten? She's forgotten. Yes, she has forgotten what God said about that fruit. You know, sort of like if um, one of your children, I'm not thinking of a great example right now, but like if there's rat poison that you've had to put out and you're saying to your children like, oh, that, that powder might look really interesting and you might wonder and it's curious and maybe it looks like sugar, but that's dangerous. That could kill you. And that's what she's forgotten, isn't it? She's forgotten that that could, that will kill her. So, yeah. So, and she's not checking with anybody. Yeah. So she's noticing some things about the fruit that are probably true right? It probably was pleasing to the eye. So there are some things about the fruit that are true. So she's believing kind of some half-truths, isn't she? And isn't this so often what happens to us when sin comes along? We forget what God has said about sin. We look at it, we only see the desirable and we suddenly start believing some half-truths about it. Satan tells us it's going to be good for us, and we start believing that. So that is going to be something that you're going to have more opportunity to dig into in your table groups, how you particularly, temptation comes along to you, and how you particularly respond to temptation. All right, so let's move on. The second half of verse 6. What do Adam and Eve do? They eat it. Yep, she takes it. She gives it to her husband. They sin. Yep, they 
blatantly disobey what God told them to do. Now grab your books, because I thought that um, Roberts had a good, a really good way of talking about, yes, this was blatant disobedience of what God said. The, they were countering and going absolutely against what he had commanded. Um, but then in the middle there of 39, he talks, um, tells us what actually they're doing in their hearts when they blatantly disobey God. Does anyone want to kind of summarize what he says there or get us going in a discussion about that? What's that? There may, okay, they start making their own rules and their own laws that it's okay to eat that fruit. Okay, not just law-breaking, but law-making. Deciding on their own terms what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a, yep, yep, it's a bid to be like God. They're taking the, God, the crown that rightfully be- belongs to the Lord as ruler, and they're snatching it, and they're putting it on their own heads. They're like, they're just, kicking God off the throne and saying, no, we should be God. We should be in charge. We should be the rule makers. We know what's right. We know what's best. I thought this was a really good way to think about sin because so often I'm tempted to think about sin of like, oh, there's this rule out there and I didn't do it. But it's, no, I really am... I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. I want to be in charge. And that deserves the curse. That deserves what they're going to get. Of Yes, Lois. Okay, uh, Lois is asking a question about kind of what was in their hearts. Now, we certainly know, and Genesis 3 makes it clear that they had the opportunity to choose whether or not they were going to reject uh, Satan, reject his temptation, and follow the Lord, or the opportunity to choose sin, which they did. So they had that opportunity. Now, since Adam and Eve and their sin has corrupted their hearts, We have all been born into sin and corruption. We all, Psalm 51.5 makes it clear. That's a great verse to jot down um, if you'd like to. It all makes, Psalm 51.5 and other places in scripture make it clear. We have all been born with a sin nature. We have been born with the propensities to sin. We are not born like Adam and Eve where we could choose the good or choose sin. We've been born bent and ready to choose sin. So, and that is part of what's going on with Genesis 3, right? And what we live out every day is that propensity to choose sin. Okay, so they they do wrong. We've looked at what Robert said about what they really are doing of throwing God um, off the throne, what we all know they should have done, which reject Satan and kick him out of the garden 
Instead of kicking God off his throne, they should have kicked Satan out of the garden. But sadly, they don't do that. And then look at verse 7, because already God hasn't even shown up yet, and already we're seeing the effect of their sin. And what does verse 7 tell us? They know that they're naked, and they sew the fig leaves together. So already they are aware of the shame of sin, and they're trying in their own kind of best efforts, which of course are ridiculous, to try and deal with the shame of their sin. But it is ridiculous, and it's not going to work. So then God shows up. And let me go ahead and read verses 18 to 24 for us. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and and his wife and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, He must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of of life. All right, so in this section, God does arrive. And he doesn't do what they immediately deserved does he? What did they immediately deserve? Death, to just be completely, utterly wiped out, no questions asked. But God doesn't do that. In fact, what does he do first? Need someone? Okay, he closed them, but that's not the first thing he does, right? 
What does he do? Very, very first thing. So we're just going to like, again, walk through slowly. So I should, I should tell you guys some verses. I'm sorry about that. Um, looking at kind of verses nine, what does he do first? So that's how kind of slowly we're going to go through. What's that? He calls out to them. Yep. And he has a question for them, right? He asks Adam a question. He's giving Adam a chance to respond. And what does, what does Adam do? Just how characterize the responses, because God asks a few questions, and then think about the responses in verses 12 and 13 that Adam and Eve give. Blame shifting. <laughs> yes, that's a great way to characterize it. They blame shift. They try to put it off on someone else. So what don't they do that they should have? Take responsibility. They don't own it. Have you guys ever done that? <laughs> I've done that. It's funny, isn't it, how I'm tempted, and you guys probably are too, to have the same responses that Adam and Eve had when you're confronted with sin, when the spotlight is on me. I want to have that same, like, how can I put that spotlight on somebody else or move it over? Yep. So he gives them an opportunity uh, to respond. They try to blame shift. And then he does um, come and he has uh, a curse of judgment, a word of judgment for them. First, he has a word of judgment for the serpent, then for the woman, and then for the man. So what is the curse of, for the woman? Pain in childbirth, yeah. Pain in childbearing, yeah. Con okay, the desire for the husband, desire for control, and the husband's going to rule over her. So rela relationships between man and, and the woman, husband and wife, they're not going to work the way they were supposed to work in the garden, are they? They're going to be marred. Yeah. What about the man? What's his word of judgment or his curse? Hard labor. Yep, it's not going to be like that wonderful job he was supposed to have in the garden of tending it and caring for it along with his wife. But it is going to be hard labor just to get food out of the ground. Yep. Well, again, you guys are going to have a, some time in your table groups to talk about how do we see these same effects of the curse in ourselves and in our relationships around us. How have we been affected by this today? Okay. Um, and then let's look down at verses 20 and following. And then Connie brought up a great thing. What does God do for Adam and Eve? Connie, and following in verse 20. He, yeah, he clothes them. He cares for them. And what does this apply, imply about the death that they deserved? Okay, okay, so yeah, we could really get into that, but at least at the very least, and that's really good, I would love to explore that, we're not going to do it quite right now, um, that yes, okay, on this, I was, 
I'm sorry, I was misunderstanding. But in one sense, the animal took the death that they deserved. Yes, and that's how they got the clothing. The death that they deserved, an animal took, but it's also going to be delayed. Because if you need, if they need clothing and they're provided with clothing, it means that death isn't going to happen right away, right? I think we see God's grace, yes. I think we see his grace, we see his mercy in this, yeah. And then what else happens as you look further on in verses 20 and following? What else is happening to them? They're forced, they get kicked out of the garden, yes. So one of the consequences, they are no longer allowed to be in God's presence. And there's an element of grace and mercy in this as well. Did you see that in verse um, 22? Yes, that God in his grace and mercy does not want them to live forever in that state, the state that they're in. But it is also judgment that they're being kicked out. So it's, it's that grace and mercy and judgment all being held together because there's also judgment that they're being kicked out because Adam and Eve, who were designed to live forever with God, are now being cast out of the garden. They are separated from God and his presence, which is a mercy because had they stayed in their state in the garden, God would have had to kill them He would have had to judge them because he cannot be in the presence of sin. So he had to kick them out of the garden. They are now no longer able to be with him in his presence. They will die. They are going to die physically. And without God's gracious intervention, they will die spiritually as well. So they, at the end of Genesis 3, are in this awful situation. And that's us as well, right? We're all in that same situation. We are all bearing the judgment and the curse of sin. We all will die physical. If the Lord doesn't return first, we will all die physically. And without God's gracious intervention, we will all die spiritually. Just want the gravity of Genesis 3 to kind of sink in and for us to realize our, our state and where we are without God's gracious intervention. Okay, so where are we at the, at the end of Genesis 3 with God's people and God's place and God's rule? We're not. It's kind of like the antithesis of Genesis 1 and 2, right? There's the anti, the not. So, yep. All right, so help us fill out. Does God have a people at this point? No. His people have been banished. They are not in his presence. Are they in God's place? No, they are wandering in a cursed and fallen world. And God's word or God's rule, how are they experiencing that in their lives right now? In judgment, their experience is a curse and they're experiencing his word of judgment in their lives. Yep. So we've looked at some of these themes 
as well in Genesis 3. We've thought about the theme of temptation. We've thought about sin. We've thought about judgment. We've also seen hints of God's graciousness and his mercy. Well, these themes follow throughout the rest of Scripture. And Roberts helped us with that a little bit, didn't he? By helping us see how those themes are woven out through Genesis 4 through 11. So flip over, in my, in my copy, it's on page 41. It starts on page 41 of my book, where he starts kind of walking through Genesis 4 to 11 and how we see these themes played out. I would love for somebody just to take one of those chapters and tell us briefly how we see those themes of sin, judgment, curse being played out. Sure, go in order. Take, take Genesis 4 for us. <laughs> okay, so once the vertical relationship is broken, horizontal relationships are going to be broken. And Cain and Abel, we're seeing that. So the death that Adam and Eve uh, and their descendants deserved, they're now inflicting on each other, aren't they? Cain kills Abel. All right, what else? What about chapter 5? What's the refrain that we're hearing throughout chapter 5? And then he died, and then he died. It's like a drumbeat, right? So death has come. It's coming. Yep. And then we get to Genesis 6 and... What do we see in Genesis 6, 5? The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Sin has just welled up and reached this incredible level to the point that the Lord needs to wipe out. He needs to wipe out mankind and And uh, what uh, Roberts there says, it's a reversal of creation, right? And so when Adam steps off the ark, God's starting afresh. Mary talked to us last week. It's like creation is starting all over again. But unfortunately, the sin hasn't gone away, right? Because the sin has penetrated The sin has gotten into people's hearts. Everyone is born in sin and iniquity. So nothing has changed. Then we come to the Tower of Babel. What happens in the Tower of Babel? Once again, man wants to be like God. They, I mean, literally, we have this like, we, this picture of them trying to build up that whatever that a structure is, so they can actually get to heaven to kick God off his throne. What does God do in his graciousness? He frustrates them? Yeah, what else? Someone else tell me what he does. He disperses them. Yes. In his graciousness, he doesn't wipe them out as they deserve, but he disperses them so that sin cannot well up like it did Um, in Genesis 6 that we saw. Yes. And then if we were going to continue on and look at other passages of Scripture, we would come to Exodus. And the beginning of Exodus looks like good news, doesn't it? 
God has a people he has created through the line of Abraham. He's created a people for himself. He goes to great lengths to save and deliver them. He brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them his law. And how do the people respond? First, they make an idol. We come to Exodus 32, the golden calf. Moses hasn't even made it down off the mountain yet. And the people are already worshiping another God. They're in sin. They rejected this God who has done all these incredible things for them. And Moses brings judgment. He calls the people to himself who are on God's side. And they exercise judgment by going throughout the camp and executing those who have sinned and rejected God. So the judgment is partially carried out there. Yes, but then God graciously does not abandon his people. He leads his people through the desert. He leads them up to the promised land. They reject his goodness to him. He leads them in the, promise, uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. But then he brings his people into the promised land. He fights all the battles for them. There they are, established, well-established in the promised land. And what do we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament? Rebellion, yep, sin, sinful leaders who become more sinful over time, leading the people into greater and greater sin. It's a downward spiral of the Old Testament. There are a few bright spots but it's depressing to read because of the downward spiral. God has mercy on them. He calls them back to himself over and over again, but they continue to reject, respond, and sin. And finally, he kicks them out of the promised land. Reminds us of the garden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. The people are being kicked out of the promised land. That's right. So when we see the death in the Bible, when we see God carrying out judgment of uh, death against nations and against people, against those who are wicked and rebellious, this is God executing the just judgment for sin. We're tempted, I'm tempted because it's so hard for us to see ourselves as as sinners to understand sin and its effects um, in the world and how it has corrupted us. It is so hard for us to see that, that it's easy for us to say, God is so awful. He seems so mean. He seems so unjust. But we have to remind ourselves, this is what sin deserves. This is the just judgment for sin. And, And we've even seen already, haven't we, God's graciousness along the way. We're going to even see more of that graciousness. This helps us to take sin seriously, which is what we all need to do is to take sin more seriously. Now, we know this isn't the whole story, right? And it's not the whole story for the believer, because we know that God uses the suffering that we experience in a fallen world. He uses that for good. He redeems it. But there is an aspect 
of uh, what we experience in the fallen world uh, as a judgment for sin. The sickness that we experience, the sickness that our loved ones experience, the brokenness that we are experiencing, that is the result of sin. Well, we've been focusing on the bad news, but there is good news. There is hope because I skipped over Genesis 3.15. So let me just quickly go back to that and read that. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This comes in the um, curse to the serpent and it's a promise, isn't it? It's God is going to send a deliverer. And God is going to send a deliverer who can strike the head of Satan and deal him a death blow. And of course, we know when God's son is born, Jesus, that that is the deliverer who has come to strike Satan's head. He is going to be the one to deliver his people from the bondage of sin. And so Jesus grows up, he's baptized, and what's the first thing he does after he's baptized to begin his ministry? Yes, he goes into the desert, the wilderness. He goes into the desert, and he fasts for 40 days. And then who comes along? Satan comes along to tempt him. And what does this remind us of? Reminds us of the garden, doesn't? Satan coming along to tempt Eve. And there are similarities, but there's also differences, right? Uh, is Jesus in a lush garden? No, he's out wilderness, desert. Is his stomach full from all the goodness and the bounty of the garden? No, he's fasted for 40 days. But even in those conditions, he rejects Satan, not just once, but three times. He rejects Satan's temptation. He rejects and throws Satan out as Adam and Eve should have. He does what none of us could have done, right? He rejects the temptation on our behalf. And then he goes on to do what none of us could have done, live that life of perfect obedience. And then that's not all he does. He goes to the cross. And when he's on the cross, he takes the curse of death that we deserved. And he absorbs all of God's wrath. And he overturns the curse so that we don't have to experience that curse of spiritual death anymore. We have that opportunity to come once again into God's presence with sin being wiped out and paid for by Jesus on our behalf. Well, as Christians, that is our good news. We still live in this fallen world, and if we had time, we could look at Revelation 20. Last week, we looked at 21, where our future home is, but even before that, there's some good news in Revelation 20, because there's going to be a final judgment, right? In this world, we're still harassed by Satan, but he's going to be judged finally and forever, and he will no longer be able to harass us. He will no longer be able to 
tempt us. And all of that is good news. So we had a lot of bad news this week, but we can be even be encouraged by the bad news because we can be encouraged by knowing we can make sense of a fallen world, right? We can make sense of a fallen world in a way that non-Christians around us can't make sense of suffering um, and bad things that happen. We can also treasure Christ and what he has done for us more fully when we understand what he has taken for us and what our future, what, what future he has secured for us. And it helps us to take sin more seriously and to be more excited about fighting sin in our own lives and more excited about telling others the good news of the gospel, those who are still under the bondage of sin. And then we know this is not the way it's going to be forever. We have a new future where this is not, and this is not it, right? So even in the bad news, there's good news for us.